Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest on the show is Ethan Perlstein. He's outspoken on social media, unafraid to rattle cages with the biotech industry powers that be. He's followed an unusual entrepreneurial path, starting a public benefit company, raising money from non-traditional sources, embracing radical transparency, building an unusual model organism-based platform for drug discovery when that isn't exactly fashionable, and using his internet savvy to mobilize partners to help him come up with treatments for rare diseases. At the core, this is a guy who questions basic assumptions about the world and isn't afraid to roll the dice and do things differently. I think you'll enjoy hearing his thought process. Now, before we get going, for more than 200 years, Harvard Medical School has shaped the design of medical school education throughout the world. Now, Harvard Medical School is bringing its expertise to organizations that seek to drive growth and innovation in healthcare. HMS designs and delivers customized executive level programs that provide business and science leaders with a fundamental understanding of current medical practices, the changing economic landscape of healthcare, and the latest advances in biomedical science. Companies like Google, Amgen, GE, and Athena Health are already leveraging new customer insights they've gained through their work at Harvard Medical School. Programs include first-hand insights into physician decision-making, patient perspectives, real-world workflows, and the business of medicine. Advances in technology, biomedical science, and patient care that may present new opportunities for your company. Discussions on trends in patient-centered care, data science, genomics, digital health, policy, and reimbursement. And exploration of state-of-the-art treatments for specific diseases. For a free consultation on how your organization can gain new customer insights with Harvard Medical School, the Long Run Podcast listeners can go to a special place. Point your web browser to hms.harvard.edu slash longrunexec, all one word. I'll say that again. For a free consultation on how your organization can gain insights from Harvard Medical School, go to hms.harvard.edu slash longrunexec. And just about everyone in the cancer R&D business is thinking about combination therapy and complementary mechanisms of action. Not only do drug developers need to see proof of their biological mechanism as a monotherapy, but also in combination with other treatments that are fast emerging on the scene. This gets complicated in a hurry, especially when you think about all the possible mechanisms, dose regimens, and tumor types that need to be taken into account. Companies today often have to burn through 30 to 50 patients in a phase one clinical trial to get the answer to these important questions. And that takes a lot of precious time and money. Presage Biosciences is working to improve this approach. They are now working with biopharma companies to use Presage's patented microinjector device that enables intratumoral microdosing of experimental cancer drugs. This microdosing tool can allow for a half dozen or more combinations of drugs to be injected directly into a single tumor while the tumor is still in the mouse or in the patient. This is a way to run multiple experiments at once to get maximum information to guide drug development on time and on budget. 
The device is being used in a clinical trial right now. To learn more, go to presagebio.com. Next on the long run, Chip Clark. He's the CEO of Cambridge, Massachusetts-based Genosha Biosciences. This vaccine platform company was in big trouble last summer. It got through a phase two trial with its lead therapeutic vaccine for genital herpes. Clark tried to insist the trial was a success and that the product had a future. The market disagreed. Cash ran low. Morale ebbed. Something had to be done. How did Clark think about restarting the company? Pivoting, as he says, toward a new future as a personalized neoantigen cancer vaccine developer. Clark was pretty candid about this difficult stretch at Genosha, and I think many entrepreneurs will be able to relate to the experience and learn from it. But for now, join me and Ethan Perlstein for this episode of The Long Run. Well, today on The Long Run Podcast, I'm pleased to have Ethan Perlstein with me. Thanks for joining me today, Ethan. Thrilled to be here with you, Luke. So, Ethan, I've been looking forward to having you for some time. Um, I, I think your experience is just interesting on so many levels. Um, you, you start out as a, a scientist coming up in the Stu Schreiber famous chemistry lab at Harvard. Mm-hmm. You move on and do a postdoc at Princeton. You've got uh, you're paying your dues, uh, becoming on a track to become a tenure track academic researcher. But then the financial crisis hits and uh, you look around one day and realize there's um, not a lot of jobs out there like that, uh, that maybe you would have imagined. Mm-hmm. You help popularize this term of the post-docalypse. Um, there's a lot of people out there in this boat getting scientific training and not quite sure where to go and how to apply it. So you become a new media, you become a new type of entrepreneur. Um, you move west. You mm-hmm. become a social media maven. Um, <laughs> you're a fan of model organisms. Mm-hmm. You're a basketball fan. You're a dad. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're an outspoken. Uh, you have outspoken political opinions. Uh, so we, we could talk for hours. But <laughs> I, Ethan, I, I guess maybe for people who are a little less familiar, mm-hmm. um, can, can you tell me like where does your story begin? Where did you grow up? Yeah, I mean, my story begins in uh, South Florida, in the the suburbs of uh, Miami, in North Miami Beach. Um, And, uh, you know, I I was really lucky to have, um, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, obviously caring parents and caring grandparents who who nurtured sort of every one of my whims and fancies. Um, And and from a young age, I I was sort of attracted to to science and, and to um, and to the lab. Um, but yeah, my journey uh, starts uh, 38 years ago in, uh, in Florida. And what did your mom and dad or grandparents do? My dad was, was a lawyer um, and uh, eventually um, is, is actually aspiring to be a writer, um, actually, of, of, about Jane Austen. And that could be a whole other subject for another podcast uh, in another day. But um, yeah, he, he, when I was growing up, he, he was a lawyer. And my mom, um, you know, had, had various different odd jobs. Um, and, and, and my parents, my grandparents were also, um, sort of heavily involved, uh, on both sides, paternal and, and paternal. Uh, my parents actually split up when I was a kid. And so I, I went between homes, both of their homes growing up. And, and so my grandparents provided, um, a lot of great support over those years. So you caught the science bug pretty early on. Was there a, a teacher or a moment like in grade school or high school that where the switch kind of flipped for you? 
Well, I mean, I, 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 you know, my parents would always sort of tell me little stories and, you know, it's hard to know if those were true or not, you know, of, of kind of, you know, their, their, their child, you know, playing with sand on the beach and, and you know, probably um, overstating the significance of that as some kind of early chemistry experiment or something. Um, but, you know, to my mind, I think it, it really sort of came, science really gelled for me uh, when I was in high school. Um, you know, when I started out high school, I got, I got a hold of an immunology textbook, and that was the, the area of biology that I happened to fall in love with first. Um, and then from that, ex, uh, from that experience of, uh, of reading this textbook, and then around that time is when papers started to be available uh, online, you know, when journals like Nature and Science um, and others were starting to put uh, papers online. And so uh, as, a, as, a, as a teenager, I could access them, uh, you know, through my dad's uh, account, right? I didn't have my own account at the time, but I was able to start to scour the literature. Uh, and it was there that I really, I think, fell in love um, more specifically with, with research and with bench research and, and doing cutting edge um, uh, lab, lab experiments. And so that's when I was fortunate enough to get uh, an internship at a biotech company, a small biotech company in, in South Florida area. Uh, and, and I was able to go there essentially after school um, every day for, for the better part of my uh, senior year and, and really under, really get a firsthand taste of, of, of research, in, a, in, a, in this case, in a biotech setting. I also did um, you know, research internships at NIH. Um, and so that gave me a, a, a good understanding of what, 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 is it, what does it look like to be um, a, a PI or principal investigator. And that's kind of where I thought I was going to end up one day. Wow. So you started as early as high school. Now you're, you're just a little bit younger than me, but you know, I'm trying to figure this out. Was this like dial up broadband? Yeah. Well, dial, before well, broadband. Yeah. This would have been, you know, my junior year of high school in 1996. So this would have been that, mm-hmm. that period where, uh, it's still, still AOL. I think, I think we just got our first internet service providers that weren't AOL. Um, but yeah, that I didn't have my own email address. I had to actually, I actually was like using my dad's email address that caused some, some issues, um, with some researchers who didn't believe they were corresponding with a 17 year old. Um, but, uh, that led to some funny stories, but, but in any case, yeah, I, it was, it was still, you know, pretty early days. No, no iPhones, certainly no iPhones. Well, but, but a heady time, like for yeah. a kid, it's like, wow, you, you know, maybe previous you had to go to the library to, you know, get access to these research papers. And now it's like all there on your, you know, your home computer. And what's more is the email addresses were there, right? So for the first time, you could correspond with the corresponding author and not like, you know, have to write a letter. You could just send them an email. Um, and, and I found that by and large, they would respond. Okay. So you, uh, you're catching on to biotech pretty early. It's the mid nineties. The industry is, is getting more and more interesting. The human genome project was, you know, in the news, maybe you've heard about it mm-hmm, at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, how do you end up going to Harvard? Yeah. So I, I was doing a bunch of internships at NIH in, in the summers between, um, years at college. And, uh, at, it was in a laboratory of, of a scientist named Ronald Germain, Ron Germain. Um, and, and Ron counseled me that I should open my eyes to, um, to other areas of biology than just immunology, which was sort of like my first love in science. And so he counseled me to, to get some exposure in neuroscience and ended up doing uh, uh, research for credit program my senior year of college uh, in Dr. Eric Kandel's lab, um, not knowing who he was at the time. And that was the year actually 2001 when he got the Nobel. So it was really odd, odd good timing, uh, I guess, to be in that, to get into neuroscience. Um, and, that, and then it was really in that experience that I realized you know what, I want to apply to a grad school program that's not just uh, immunology. I had been thinking for all those years that I would just kind of follow in the footsteps of my first mentor and, and then realize, well, you know, 
he was right. There's, there's, there's more to biology than immunology. And, and, um, and so that's why I decided I wanted to go to a program uh, like Harvard, which I was lucky enough to get into that was, you know, had a very long history in, in molecular biology um, and also had, you know, ex- you know, representatives of all the various subfields from, from cell biology to, to neuroscience, of course. Uh, genomics was just sort of getting off the ground back then. Uh, assistance biology was something people still talked about back then. I'm not sure what they call that this, uh, these days, but, but yeah, Harvard really came about. Network biology. Network biology, exactly. So, but yeah, but Harvard and grad school really came about when I, I, I took all those research uh, lab experiences and, and said, okay, now this has to have to, this has to have some kind of formal training associated with it because I I didn't necessarily do all the coursework associated with the typical sort of a bio grad student path. Uh, I, I reasoned that I could get all my lab experience or I get all my science in the lab, and then I could sort of take classes in, in other areas like sociology and history. But lucky enough, I was able to have enough of the background um, and the basics that I was able to to get into grad school, and and, and from there, um, that's when uh, things I think really took off uh, for me. Uh, in terms of being able to start to have the freedom to to develop my own ideas. Now, how did you uh, cross paths with uh, the Schreiber Lab and the legendary Stu Schreiber of chemical biology? I first, you know, learned about Stewart's lab and, and what they were doing um, soon as soon as I got to Harvard. I mean, at the time, the lab was over fifty people. It was sort of the peak of of um, of the Schreiber Lab in that in that moment. Um, and, and I did a couple of rotations. I actually rotated in Doug Melton's lab. Um, you might have come across his name, big, big stem cell person, uh, focused on, on oh, pancreas. Yeah. And, and and at the time, his you know his, his children had just gotten the diagnosis and. Um, it kind of pivoted to, to working in that area. So I did a couple of rotations, but rotated in Stewart's lab and, and then just fell in love with that, uh, at, at atmosphere where there was this, um, you know, equal mix of chemists and biologists. And there was this feeling of, of, of like infinite possibility. Uh, literally you were synthesizing new molecules all the time and, and sprinkling them on, on your different assay system. And, and people were working on yeast and zebrafish. It was a total, in some ways it was a kind of pre- precursor and, and planted the seed to, to what, to what kind of came, became Perlara today and in the way that we're you know, very multidisciplinary, very multi-system oriented. That really was something that I got introduced to, you know, as a grad student um, back in 2002. Well, so now this would have been like the mid-2000s. You're progressing through there, right, uh, through your graduate school years. I, you mentioned Doug Melton. One thing I remember, I was on my night science journalism fellowship at MIT in 05, 06, and we toured the Melton lab. And this would have been, uh, you know, to bring up politics, uh, middle of the uh, Bush administration years. And uh, he, there was a, uh, a federal funding ban, as you remember, mm-hmm. oh, on yeah. uh, embryonic stem cell research. And so it was very strange. You'd go visit the Melton lab, and there was one area that was federally funded um, and they were squirreled away in one area and you had to like go out the door and down the street to Mm -hmm. the privately funded lab where they worked on embryonic stem cells. Um, I can't imagine that, that, you know, you were aware of that sort of thing. Lots of people were aware of it. Um, Scientists, science becoming a little more mixed up with politics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That was right around the time that the Broad Institute was also getting off the ground. Um, Yeah, definitely. So um, you uh, you get your PhD uh, and you move on like a lot of people do to a postdoc. 
what were you hoping to accomplish there? And I think this was at Princeton, right? Yeah, yeah. So I was, again, fortunate enough, I, I was able to get uh, this Lewis Sigler Fellowship, which is an independent postdoctoral fellowship where, um, unlike a conventional postdoc where you still kind of worked in the lab of a, of a senior um, investigator, um, I was lucky enough to be able to get my own research funding um, through the fellowship and, and, and run a small lab, run, run a small group. Um, so that experience that 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 started in 2007 and, and ran uh, for five years through 2012 and and you know at, at the time uh, and you look at all the people who went through that program they all end up in academia and that was exactly where I thought I was going I thought this fellowship was sort of training for becoming a principal investigator um, and only as sort of the financial crisis unfolded and, and as kind of the job freezes um, that were going on when I first started and when it became clear that yeah maybe people are hiring again but now there's a lot of people who want the same job because of that 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 holdup, um, and people call it sort of the, the holding tank. That the postdoc is just sort of this place where people just have to keep waiting to get their turn um, into academia and into a tenure track position. So I, I kind of saw the writing on the wall uh, around to the 2010, 2011, um, and that's actually the, the moment when I realized I need to come up uh, probably with another plan here, uh, especially after striking out on the, the academic job market. Um, really had to, to think about a plan B. Whereas I never really had to do that before and came up with this whole phrase of the postocalypse and, and wrote a blog post about it. That was sort of my coming out party, I think, to, to social media and, and made me realize, well, actually, um, if I have to come up with a plan B, there's maybe no better place to do that than on, a, than on Twitter because I'm, I'm able, um, at least at the time, Twitter was a place and, and still is to a large extent, a place where you could you know, create community and create connection kind of out of thin air and really have it be based on, you know, core comp com- you know, compatibilities and core similar interests with other people that you may never have a chance to meet in your normal life. So um, it, it was fortunate that, that Twitter was there at the time and, and enabled me to, to see that there was a world beyond academia and, and got me thinking what I, what I could do otherwise. Well, I want to come back to the social media and the Twitter in a second, but um, for those who are not as familiar with this postdoc kind of problem, so you had been doing it for three or four years uh, and you realized, you know, this, uh, the numbers game here is something like maybe 10% of the people who come out of a, a postdoc program like this are going to end up getting a tenure track faculty job. Um, just because, partly because the, the funding situation at NIH was pretty flat in those years. It wasn't like universities were creating new positions or opening up new departments, um, to, to absorb all the trainees that are coming out. Um, so you could do everything right. (laughs) Like you could have, you know, a great resume, you could have a few great publications and it's just like, sorry, pal, no, well, the problem is that, aren't jobs. yeah, it's, it's, it's that it's like, sorry, pal, but it's also, yeah, there's 300 other people who look just as good on paper, you know, whose CVs or resumes look just as qualified. And there's only one position open at, at this faculty, you know, in this, in this faculty, um, search. And so, and then, you know, those 300 people are, are, are all basically, in, you know, not, not all of them, but a good chunk of them are probably really indistinguishable when it comes to any measures of merit we can make. So, yeah, and, and those numbers were, you know, 1 in 300 a couple of years ago. I can, I've, I've only heard and can imagine that they've gotten worse, especially at the competitive places. So I think nowadays, you know, only 10% of folks, I don't know the exact re- most recent stats, but only around 10% or so, uh, 10, 15% of, of PhDs, uh, people who are awarded PhDs actually end up 
in a tenure track um, uh, position. So by the time you get to postdoc, the, the odds do get a little bit better because you're selecting out all those other people who are like, no, I'm, I'm out. Uh, but then you have people now sort of doing second postdocs and third postdocs. And, you know, when I was back in the day, it was always the difference like between different communities where like a bio postdoc might be four years or something and a chemistry postdoc might be two years. And, and now it's just like all postdocs are trending toward four or five years. And not just that you do one, but you have to do multiple postdocs just to stay competitive because all it's an arms race. All the other you know, great postdocs out there know, know the odds are against them. So they all do everything they can to, to get that, that edge. Um, and it's sort of now you're at a point where, uh, yeah, unless, unless you just double the number of universities out there, but there's not the grant funding to do that, let alone other reasons, then how are you going to absorb all these folks who are otherwise, you know, very well trained? And then, you know, the statistics on PhDs too. are good, right? You know, un- unemployment, long-term unemployment for PhDs is, is quite low. So I don't want to call attention to that when there's other parts, you know, other people in the economy who are hurting a lot worse than, than a PhD who can't get an academic job. But still, it, it, is, it is not as easy as it was once upon a time. Well, there's a lack of preparation and uh, a mindset, I guess, in graduate school programs that I'm familiar with, that, that there even are these other paths. <laughs> and what? how does one become an entrepreneur or go work in government or uh, communications or something? I mean, there are a lot of things you can do with the scientific training um, that are impactful and, and rewarding. But um, that, that tenure track idea ha- has a very powerful hold on, on many people. Um, but... Uh, you know, I think this is really, um, you know, to an outside observer like me, this is one of the really big kind of tectonic problems in the scientific enterprise that you've got people doing these extended postdocs who, you know, they're they're making starvation wages. I mean, what, 30 some, maybe low 40,000s in expensive cities. Um, you know, you're in your, entering your late 20s, early 30s, starting to have a family. I mean, it's, it's time to... Uh, you know, start putting down roots mm-hmm. and buying a house. I mm-hmm. mean, you certainly got, you know, classmates who, you know, didn't slave away in the lab like you did, who are probably doing pretty well when you look around. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I mean, I think things are, are getting a little bit better in the sense that they're, the, the, the grad students that I encounter and the postdocs I encounter today, you know, on places like Twitter and when I go give seminars or, or go to conferences, they're definitely aware that the, there is a postdocalypse, right? The, so that that I think there is an awareness. It's still, as you kind of pointed out, ha- has to catch up on the on the administrative side, right? That the universities and the labs and the lab heads have to appreciate. Uh oh, you know, we need to now, for example, maybe let our students do some internships in industry, right? Let let them, you know, that you know, you do a rotation in the beginning of grad school to figure out well which lab is for me. Well, what if halfway through grad school you realize, well, I don't want to be an academic, I want to be an industry. Well. Maybe there should be a way to have you get exposure, and, and that has to be coming from sort of the, the top down. So I, I think that things are going to get better because they can't get any worse, but, but definitely I feel like the younger generation of trainees is, is aware that they need to uh, have plan B, C, and D. So you sounded the alarm in this uh, blog post about the postdocalypse. You got a lot of attention. I mean, media attention. Mm-hmm. I think that's when you and I first came into contact, mm-hmm. and I know you met lots of others. Um, but um, but personally, I mean, you had to think about, okay, what am I really going to do now? Mm-hmm. Uh, you decide to just 
move west, right? Yeah, and I was thinking about that because I wrote that post in February of um, 2013. And in fact, uh, uh, you know, five, almost the five-year anniversary of moving out to California, which would have been, which will be next month, actually. So yeah, I mean, I, I um, had just gotten married at the end of 2012, and the fellowship was over, and so there was a chance to say, um, you know, we could leave New York. We were in the New York area at the time, and it was a chance to to go west. Um, and I didn't really have. You know, all of, all the plans worked out, and um, thank God, um, my wife Naz is was, was very um, flexible in terms of saying, okay, you, can, you have a year to kind of pilot whatever you're going to do and figure out what the long term plan is, um, and and so that's what happened. We moved out here, and over that first year, kind of built a community of of um, other other entrepreneurs, other scientists, um, and and then after 12 months of that diligence, um, launched uh, what became Prolara. Originally, you called it Perlstein Lab, which mm-hmm. kind of sounds like an academic lab. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but you're cre- you're creating it for yourself from scratch. Um, no, no affiliation with UC Berkeley or UCSF. For I mean, you're kind of you're on your own. Um, how did you pull this thing together? What was your vision? I mean, I think part of it was that, again, uh, even though when I was a postdoc, I was kind of told and, and was led to believe that this was training for a, a professorship, you know, running a lab was actually a flight simulator for starting a, a science company, right, for starting an, an R&D-based company. And it was only after getting some distance between myself and the postdoc did I see that, oh, yeah, I got I had experience with, with budgets. I have experience with, with management. I have ex- actually I had a million dollars that I was entrusted to spend over the course of five years. So it's not like I had a, a zero track record, um, um, you know, before this. So I think the fact that as an independent fellow, you were sort of told, hey, you've got to, you know, take the training rules off. You've got to, you've got to walk on your own. Um, and I think that in some ways that really did help prepare me for what would, would become next, which is I was going to become a, a biotech entrepreneur. And, and not only that, I was going to become a solo founder, basically, which meant that, you know, I wasn't going to have like a business co-founder and, and I was the technical you know founder because I had the science um, but I was going to have to kind of wing it when it came to um, you know some of that some of the other expertise uh, and experience that usually comes embedded in, in founding teams when you've got multiple folks coming together so I think yeah having done an independent postdoc really did prepare me to strike out anyway on my own academically and scientifically and so it, 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 once I started to realize how much practical experience that translated to um, then I realized, yeah, maybe it's not such a crazy thing to start a company. In fact, you know, I toyed with the idea of, you know, how do how, how do you how would one call this, right? And I definitely think that people from the outside might have just said, well, you're, you're you just want to be a biotech entrepreneur. But at the time, I was saying things like, well, I want to be an indie scientist, and I want I want to you know take those ideas from like from indie artists or indie filmmakers and and really try to export them to the sciences. And um, and then realized actually that. That, that, that sounded cool, <laughs> but in practice, if you're going to do anything that's science-based, then you're going to need um, you know, considerably larger sums of money than, than, than you can imagine you know, pulling off from, some, from crowdfunding campaigns, which is where I was coming from in terms of thinking about this indie science and, and kind of breaking the mold. Um, but, but, you know, in the end, these, I, these were early days, early days of like Kickstarter and yeah. these campaigns and, and social media was starting to come of age. Exactly. So, you're, you're, you so know, it was not like to connect some dots here. Exactly. So it was, you know, nowadays you're just like, oh, how many GoFundMe pages do you, you know, do you get requested to fund every day? Like it, but, but back then, 
then it was still something new and, and it, oh wow, you could actually get people to donate, you know, 50 bucks on average and you could, you know, do some science with that when you add it up. Um, yeah, I think at, at this point um, in the evolution of, of where I've come, I, I think, you know, I wouldn't, I would no longer kind of say that that was, that I'm an indie scientist, obviously, but, but I do think that, um, you know, the, the, that rebel, that rebellious spirit, um, you know, definitely uh, converted um, to, to in slightly more muted ways, but lives on in, in the company, right? I mean, the, the Perlaro was started as a, as a public benefit and it still is a public benefit corporation. I think the first biotech public benefit corporation and being different in that way was definitely inspired in that transition period I had, you know, five years ago as I was leaving academia. Presage Biosciences has a microinjector device that enables intratumoral microdosing of experimental cancer drugs. And why does this matter? It enables researchers to evaluate several drugs at once against a single tumor while the tumor is still in the mouse or in the patient. You can test multiple combinations in a single experiment, helping keep your drug development plan on time and on budget. This device is being used in clinical trials now. To learn more, go to presagebio.com. And did you know that Harvard Medical School designs and delivers customized executive level programs that provide business and science leaders with a fundamental understanding of current medical practices, the changing economic landscape of healthcare, and the latest advances in biomedical science? Companies like Google, Amgen, GE, and Athena Health are already leveraging new customer insights gained through Harvard Medical School coursework. Okay. Now grab your pencil for those of you who like to take notes for a free consultation on how your organization can gain new customer insights with Harvard Medical School executive education. Long run podcast listeners can go to a special place. Point your web browser to hms.harvard.edu slash long run exec. All one word. I'll say it again. hms.harvard.edu slash long run exec. Now tell me a little bit about this public benefit corporation, because I don't think the listeners will necessarily be familiar. But as I understand it, it's sort of a hybrid between a nonprofit structure and a for-profit uh, C-corp company that would go public someday. So in other words, like people can take a tax deduction for, for giving you money, but if you are successful in developing a drug someday, they can get their money back and maybe a little something, a little bit of return. So that's not. Am I getting this? That's roughly not, right that's, or no? That's not quite right. So, so, so the public. So what you're describing is an entity that exists. Um, uh, it's called, for example, an, an L3C, which has aspects of an LLC and aspects of a 501c3. Uh, so an organization that could, um, you know, give tax receipts, but but also sort of, um, you know, make a profit. So that that exists, but that's not what what uh, what we are. So the PBC or the, or the Public Benefit Corp is basically another kind of C corp. So we're, we're still incorporated in Delaware. So we're Delaware PBC. Um, but if you look at our articles of incorporation, which we, you know I, I blogged about this in our in our annual benefit report um, that we put out as part of being a PBC, we, we describe this language in, in detail. But essentially, we've added these this extra language to our articles of incorporation, and by that. By, by, the simply, by simply doing that, you now have created this other class uh, called a, a PBC. So 
There, there may be a time at w- where the PBC morphs even more along what you're saying, along the lines of a true hybrid between a for-profit and a profit. But as of now, it is definitely a for-profit, um, but I would sort of put it as this is a type of for-profit. So it's a, you can imagine it as sort of a, a small speciation event from the C-Corp. So the B- PBC and the C-Corp could still sort of mate with each other and produce viable offspring. Um, but, uh, but, but there is an opportunity, I think, for the PBC to start to evolve on its own course um, and and, I th- okay. and, and so that's where we are today is that they're really, PBC and the C-Corp are really close to each other. But I think we're starting a, 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 a moment in time where they're going to start to diverge. Well, how does your mandate differ at a PBC than at a C-Corp? You know, because mm-hmm. most people know a C-Corp, I mean, your, your job is to maximize the returns for shareholders, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that part of what we're saying is that we're trying to kind of uh, push back on that statement and push back on that. Uh, assumption that uh, all that we're meant to do here is maximize profits. Um, I mean, we can talk a bit about Mark Shkreli. I actually have a connection to him. It goes back to the founding of the company. But in many ways, right, that was his, that was the excuse that he was saying. And then in fact, probably any biopharma executive, if they were honest, would say, which is that, yes, I, my job as a, as, a, as, a, as a CEO of, a, of this, you know, this company uh, is to maximize the value of my shareholders. Period. End of story. And so part of, I think, what it means to be a PBC is to challenge that that narrative, to challenge that assumption, to challenge that framing, and say, wait a minute, can we also balance a, a, a public benefit with profit? Um, and again, that may seem very radical to some people, and to others it may seem totally bland and, and sort of inconsequential. But I think that the fact is, we are just at this moment where the two lineages are starting to break apart. And so PBCs are going to start to do things and act in ways where they really start to differentiate themselves from their C-Corp ancestor. But right now, they are pretty similar. And so it's what the, it's what the PBCs are saying in, 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 in public that, that I think is what defines them as, as, as differentiated today, right? Most PBCs are not in pharma. Uh, you know, there's us, and, and then there's uh, uh, Trek Therapeutics, which is another company based in Cambridge that's more clinical stage. But most public benefit corps or, or B corps, um, which are not quite the same, but, but the, this whole idea of the, the benefit corp movement, that's not really something that's taking pharma by storm right now. That's something that you see more in you know, bakeries or breweries or, or that service or, or that kind of industry. Or, you know, Etsy is a, is, a, is, a, is a publicly traded benefit corporation. Um, so what we're trying to do is push back on this, this idea that pharma is only about maximizing profit because um, there's plenty of villains who have, have, have um, demonstrated that, that, you know, that that's the way some folks operate. And so we're trying to be in opposition to that pretty clearly as, as not only about profit maximization. Now, you mentioned uh, social media earlier on and getting engaged in the Twitter community. One of the people you met there was Martin Shkreli, yes. um, infamous uh, character, um, but obviously a very talented and bright guy. Um, I, I well, I have a personal opinion about him like a lot of people do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I think he, uh, he, he really went wrong um, with, with the price gouging with Dara Prim. Um, but, um, you know, clearly you, he saw a smart guy and an entrepreneur in you, and, and you saw someone— well, how, how, would, how would you describe that first interaction? I mean, we rewind the clock now, and, and maybe it's not possible in today's world given what has happened. Um, but in 2014, uh, he, Martin Shkreli was this sort of uh, iconoclastic, brash, you know, uh, is, this the new, is this the new future of what of biotech CEOs, right? Those are the kinds of stories that were being written about him. And, and you know, starting a rare disease company with no, no biology experience, no PhD. Um, so at the time, his reputation was of this outsider um, who was sort of shaking things up and, and was kind of showing that you can go, go your own way. And so, um, you know, from a 
zoomed out point of view that that resonated, you know, with what I was going through. Um, and and I, after meeting him, it was very clear, this person is very, very brilliant. Um, but then I distinctly remember, you know, talking with my wife after meeting him and, and getting essentially an offer to be the first money into what was, you know, what was then Perlstein Lab. And, and I was thinking, well, all, I, all Google tells me is that he was a hedge fund person. And I just remember thinking, well, you know, you, you could take the guy out of the hedge fund, but you can't take the hedge fund out of the guy. And, 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 I, and I thought, well, there's got to be something there on him. Um, but at the time, you know, nothing, nothing was there. Um, or at least the crimes he got convicted of were being committed, essentially, I guess, at that time. So there was no way for me to know about them. Um, but, you know, as soon as we got wind of what was happening uh, in early 2016, then we, we, cut, we cut ties with him pretty forcefully and pretty, pretty abruptly. This is one of the uses of social media that um, that you've proven adept with. Uh, you, you found your uh, your tribe, mm-hmm. and that can be uh, investors who are interested in your science. It can be patients, patient advocates, again, who are interested in your science. But let's why don't why don't we come back to to the science here mm-hmm. um, because I think that's interesting too, and maybe sometimes gets overlooked. Um, it, you uh, started out with this this notion of really getting into heart uh, model organisms, mm-hmm. multiple model organisms, uh, and, and the things that don't get a whole lot of respect in classic pharma. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, yeast and mm-hmm. nematodes and zebrafish, all the stuff that people use in academia to to test functions of various genes. Uh, you know, you go to a classic pharma company lab and they're like, yeah, yeah, well, you know, you found something in mice, you cured cancer in mice, big whoop. Right. <laughs> right. Show me some human data. Why do you believe so strongly in this model organism-based approach to drug discovery? Well, it's really because the, the, the kinds of diseases, the diseases that we're focusing on, I think, are really amenable to this, to this viewpoint, to this evolutionary approach. So, you know, we're focusing on, on rare, and in most cases, single gene or monogenic diseases. So, you know, unlike a lot of other cases where there's a muddled or complex relationship between mutation and genes and phenotype, you know, what's special about these monogenic rare diseases is that, you know, they're, they're this case where here's the mutation and it's just one change and we can ascribe all the disease essentially to this one mutation. So from the point of view of making disease models, you know, what is usually fraught about that process is that, you know, you have to accept that your models are going to be imperfect. But if you're trying to like study diabetes and, and, or Alzheimer's, which you know is just wicked, wickedly complicated, um, you're almost sort of setting yourself up to fail when you, when you work with models that may, may just simply not be appropriate. We're not arguing that model organisms are the panacea for everything uh, and for every aspect of human biology. But, you know, the overwhelming evidence is that a lot of biology is conserved. Um, and academics get it. The basic scientists get it. And, and, and the pharma and the industry folks um, have gotten it from time to time historically. But, um, but in, in, in the current phase, may, may not be um, getting it so much. But I think ultimately— A great example with—I'm yeah. sorry to no, interrupt, go ahead, go ahead, a please, great please. example would be with something like, you know, Alzheimer's or schizophrenia, right? Multiple, multiple genes. I mean, there isn't. This doesn't just like naturally, you know, appear right. in in my right. So, so I would say, yeah, when you're when you're any any disease model that's not a human being that's trying to tackle something as complex as that is is just sort of you know it's just asking to to be disappointed. And so what we're saying is that let's let's flip the script a bit and say, well, let's now look at these cases where we know the disease is caused by this this mutation by this change. Now, if we put that change using you know using genetic technology, um, you know, i.e. CRISPR, you can now make a patient avatar in a way that really wasn't possible using previous versions of gene gene engineering technology, especially um, in terms of making sort of an apples-to-apples model from a worm to a fly to a fish to a mouse, all the way back to, say, 
um, you know, cells derived from a particular patient. So we believe that the, you know, we, 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 we are spreading the gospel of the model organisms really when it comes apply, when it really when it applies to these, these rare diseases. And because there's so many of these rare diseases, what we inevitably also believe um, is that as soon as you make a certain amount of progress on any one of these rare diseases, you're going to stumble on some connection to some bigger biology or some wider uh, application. And, you know, we've already seen that in the first few rare diseases that we look at, some of them affecting maybe fewer or 50 patients on planet Earth that we know of today. And yet we can connect that super, super rare um, disease gene to some wider, um, uh, wider biology. And I think that, you know, now do you, sorry, go ahead. Do you think of these primarily as monogenic disorders or, 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 or do you, can you delve into a little more complexity? Yeah. So I believe that in, you know, over time you can start to make these avatars more complex and more faithful to the um, genetic complexity of the human you're trying to model. So you can imagine like the first generation of, of, of the models we're making, you know, when we focus on monogenic diseases can eventually be turned into sort of next generation or, or upgrades where you can start to say, put in a second mutation, or let's say that you figured out that, um, that gene Y is a really potent modifier of your disease mutation. Um, so now you can start to build models where you incorporate that modifier. Um, so yes, you can definitely um, sort of upgrade and, and complexify the models, um, but we definitely want to start with one mutation, one phenotype, um, and, and that's kind of the bedrock of what we do. And uh, lots of things are going on in the pharmaceutical and science world in parallel. Mm -hmm. While you are getting your first funding for Pearlstein Lab, I mean, take us back to there. I mean, I mean, I didn't even ask about, you know, venture capital. I mean, did you even just want to go that route or were you thinking crowdfunding or some kind of way to get, you know, the doors open to at least like set up? some of this model organism discovery you wanted to do? Yeah, I mean, it, it, came, it became pretty clear to me that, um, that since I was on the West Coast, I, I, should, I should take advantage of what's special about this place, which is that there's a lot of seed funding available. Um, and, um, uh, and there's a lot of folks who are interested in investing in uh, opportunities in biotech. Um, so once, once after spending that first year here, 2013, 2014, and really you know, building a network, building a credible plan, um, to, to use model organisms for rare diseases, um, you know, once I'd done that, I realized, okay, how much money do I need to actually do this? And once, once it became clear that it needed about one and a half to two, two you know, two, two and a half million dollars to actually get started, then I was like, well, who can supply that kind of money? I had done, I was involved in a crowdfunding campaign that raised $25,000. And so naively thought, well, you know, maybe I could just scale it up, <laughs> um, and then and then quickly <laughs> quickly realize that that's not how it works, and then um, and then and then and then came to the conclusion that I had to probably raise from you know angel investors um, um, because a VC or, or um, you know uh, an institutional investor probably is going to have a hard time believing or, or buying into my vision because again I, I'm a solo founder I've never done this before uh, you know all those things all those marks that that, that can accrue for someone who's not an experienced. Uh, you know, drug hunter who wants to start a, a therapeutics platform company. So once it became clear I needed to get angel investors, well, the whole point of moving to the, moving to the Bay Area was that there's a ton of angels out here um, who are maybe formerly tech tech folks who now want to invest in bio opportunities. And, you know, and Y Combinator is, is sort of like the shining example of, of, of that sort of on an organizational scale. So yeah, it became clear that I was going to have to raise funding and that an institutional investor was unlikely to bite given my 
by my background and my story, but but angel investors, especially tech folks, um, might might be receptive to this uh, this story, and so that's kind of how. So you didn't beat your head against the wall trying to do a whole lot of VC meetings from the get go. No, I mean I actually had a few folks like David Granger and a couple other VCs out there that I knew were never going to fund me for just sort of geographic or other reasons, and and kind of got the feedback from them that that said. You know what? You're not going to fit that profile, <laughs> to be quite honest. Of you know the typical EIR or founding team or management team that some of the more institutional investors in the life sciences are going to back. And so I, I kind of re- and plus again, I was coming at that mindset. I had the mindset at the time that I was the indie scientist, and I like, well, I'm going to do things. If, if someone tells me to go left, I'm going to go right, just because that's that's what I'm doing right now. Um, and so at that at that moment, you know, if going right meant going down the VC path, going left meant Go go to the Bay Area and, and try to get some tech investors and, and put together a new okay. syndicate. Okay, so you fall in with this Y Combinator crowd, and I mean, my understanding of the place, there's a lot of tech people there, not a lot of bio, at least not then. Were you the like the only bio guy around the place? Basically, I mean, at the time, and that's why I was. I mean, I didn't really know. Um, so when we first moved out, when I first moved out here and the company started, we, we were in the net, we were sort of in the orbit of people of YC, but not directly. It was not until uh, 2016 um, that we got involved with YC. And, and so pre-2016, I, had, I guess I had the assumption that maybe a lot of people did, which is that, oh yeah, I know what Y Combinator is because I live out here, but you know, that's associated with Airbnb and Dropbox and Stripe and companies like that. And, and it was only when another YC founder, uh, Matt De Silva, whose company is, is Notable Labs, which is doing kind of personalized um, uh, cancer regimens using you know, actual patient samples, um, he's the one who made me realize, wait a minute, YC is actually expanding their, 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 uh, their gambit here. And they're, they're interested actually in recruiting by, quote unquote, therapeutics platform companies. They were explicitly not looking for single asset play companies, but looking for therapeutic platform companies. And I thought, oh, well, that that kind of describes us. And, and I, I, I misunderstood exactly how YC worked in terms of, I thought you had to kind of literally be the two founders or whatever out of grad school and you roll up, you know, with nothing but the clothes on your back and, and you kind of just get to work. And, you know, we'd already raised funding. And, and so I didn't know that we were still eligible in some ways, but of course we were. And, and, and joining YC was, was one of the best decisions they ever made. Well, what did you gain from that? Well, it's, it, it's, it's not just gain in the past sense. It's, it's gain today and gain, I think, uh, hopefully in the future, which is I've gained a network of, of other founders who are essentially going through exactly the same trials and tribulations I am when it comes, whether it comes to fundraising or revenues or customers or whatever. And it's just this support group that's just available at any moment, whether it's through an online forum post or meeting up with folks, you know, um, who are sprinkled around the Bay area, but it's just this amazing community. Um, you know, obviously the, the access to investors, obviously all that stuff. I, I just, you know, yes, I take those as a given. Those are great, but the, 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 the intangibles, the things that really, I think make or break companies are the connections that founders have between each other. Cause there's really nobody who knows what you're going through other than another founder. And, and it can get very lonely, especially as a CEO. Um, if you don't get that, if you don't get a sense that, that you get imposter syndrome too, just like other people do. And, and the only founders can kind of tell that to each other. And without that support, 
otherwise you have to lean much more heavily on your your family or your friends and then that can get tiresome when you know all you do is kind of lay your your CEO problems on on their at their feet so having that community of support is just so so important it's the moral support but also that referral network mm-hmm. it's you know I need I need a lawyer to do this I, exactly. I need to update my website who, who who can develop a nice looking website for me well you know I got a guy right over here <laughs> call him up Ethan mm-hmm. it works just like that so how did you start getting some traction? Because, you know, drug discovery is hard enough. Uh, it's hard enough even for the people who are so fortunate to get, you know, the 20 million or the 40 million Series A. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> how, how does this story evolve those first few years? Yeah, I mean, so I, yeah, again, I, I, I had not done this before, but I knew from my postdoc that if I had a plan and I executed on that plan, then that, that, that was basically all I could guarantee to happen because <laughs> everything else could, could be out of my control. So in those first two years, it was really about us. This is, you know, 2014 until, you know, basically the end of 2016. This was, the, this, this was really our true prototyping phase. This is where we were building a lab of, of worm and fly and yeast people. And, and that, that, again, is something that's not necessarily trivial to do, or there's not a lot of examples of that either. So getting just the lab up and running took about a year and, and, and to gel. And then it took another year to find our first asset because we knew that, or at least the, the strategy I convinced myself of was that, well, we need to somehow go from essentially seed round to partnership um, because we weren't ready to partner with patient groups, even though we knew that was our ultimate goal. Um, we thought that we had to pop, we had to partner with a, a marquee uh, pharma company that would, that would, that would signal to the rest of the world that, yep, you know, these are newcomers here at, at Pearlstein lab or Perlara, but there, there's some there, you know, you should pay attention to them. So we, so essentially for after the first year of just setting up the company and, and then we, we did our, our screening campaign um, for our lead program for Neiman Pixie and, and everything kind of worked according to plan. And so after, uh, by, by the end of 2015, we had an asset, we had a small molecule that we were starting to kind of shop around. And then that was a period of about a year from end of 2015 to October, 2016, where we were just going through this, you know, this BD dating ring or, or, sort of, or sort of dating circuit where we were just going from company to company and, and just asking, would you like to license this program? Would you like to license this program? Um, and then in the end got about three companies um, in, in a, in a, in, to, to do diligence, right? To just beyond the kind of niceties and pleasantries, but to actually looking at the, the hard data. And in the end, we ended up partnering with Novartis, which I think uh, was sort of the best, best possible partner for us at that stage and, 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 and going forward because ultimately we need not only the ability to say, yep, uh, an established pharma player endorses our, 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 our approach, um, but also we wanted to learn from the best in, in the world when it comes to chemical biology and drug discovery in, in general. I think Novartis, especially Novartis Institute of Biomedical Research, this is my opinion, but I think they are sort of the best of the best in terms of pharma scientists. Now, wait a wait a second, Ethan. So this program, just name and pick type three, I think you said. Type C, yeah. Oh, type C. I'm sorry. Um, so what was your thesis? Did you have a novel target here as well as like chemical matter that you had developed internally? So the thesis was that of all the rare diseases that we could start with, and we knew as a platform, we weren't going to have the luxury of getting three shots on goal. We were going to have like one shot on goal. So I, I spent most of that diligence year, 2013, 2014, figuring out of the 7,000 rare diseases, where do we aim first? Because if we miss, we may not ever get a chance to do it again. And so Neiman Pixie emerged as a very de-risked 
uh, disease in terms of how much literature had already been published on it. So, you know, 20 years ago, someone showed that you could make a fly model. 15 years ago, someone showed you could make a worm model. So based on all of that foundational research, basically someone did all the basic research and all we had to do was translate it. And so I thought, well, you know, there's some risk to that, but not as much risk as if we were just doing it from zero. And so the idea was let's build worm and fly models of Neiman Pixie and let's do a high throughput screening campaign. Uh, let's screen 50,000 novel compounds um, and let's try to identify uh, a hit or two that was really promising that we could try to build a, a preclinical data package around. Okay. And so you, you, um, you nominate a lead candidate and then you go through some of the, the usual kind of paces mm-hmm. like uh, chemical optimization, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And that's what we've been doing. So the, the collaboration is now almost a year and a half old. We started in October 2016, and we've now gone through a lead optimization campaign where, you know, the starting compound that we were working with, um, you know, had had a potency of, say, uh, three or four micromolar. Now we have compounds that are almost a thousand times more potent. Um, so we believe that the, the you know, again, the, the, we believe that this was a successful campaign, but also from Perlara's point of view, this was a successful teaching uh, moment for us because now we can learn from this exercise and then apply it to our to our other programs that are not uh, in collaboration with Novartis. Interesting. So in this case, you're building on a lot of existing basic research that's out there in the public domain. But meanwhile, you're building up your discovery platform um, and CRISPR um, come, hits the scene. Mm-hmm. And you said, wow, uh, <laughs> now we can really kind of systematically go through these models and knock out a gene here or a gene there and, and see what it does like pretty pretty quickly, pretty good scale, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's exactly what was the rationale back then. And, and that's now that we're working on eight programs uh, with more to come, it, it, everything that we kind of thought would happen um, has sort of materialized more or less. You mentioned that Novartis is a really good partner. I mean, uh, they got a, a, a big group of scientists around the world. I think there also might have been a personal connection here. Did that help in any way? Like uh, going back to like Jay Bradner being part of the uh, Stu Schreiber, uh, the Schreiber Mafia network, the Schreiber Mafia. Yeah. Um, well, so I think when Jay joined, we already had started discussions, kind of more organically. You know, going through the Strategic Alliance group and then having meetings with the kind of science principals. So we already had the conversation started um, by the time Jay, uh, I think, was announced. And then by the time he actually took over, we already were sort of working through the the deal process. So I I know that it probably did not hurt (laughs) at all to have him involved um, sort of just sort of at the top. But, but, you know, obviously he's a very, very busy person. Um, They're doing a lot of important things. But I think, uh, yeah, I I would say that 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 former affiliation, um, you know, definitely didn't hurt. Now, was it difficult or did it add any layer of complexity for you guys being a public benefit corp, as we talked about earlier? Um, you know, because, I mean, these these BD guys, they have their standard deal templates. They're used to dealing with companies that are C-corps. And, you know, they want to own the lion's share of the asset that might come out of this on the other side. So how, was there a different tenor to this kind of uh, set of discussions? I would say actually not not terribly much so because um, the, I think that the, the, the deal we have with Novartis – as you kind of alluded to, right, it, the, the structure is not very exotic. It's 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 a it's a deal structure that you know people are familiar with in terms of a smaller company, um, you know, partnering out its its discovery assets to to a, a bigger developer, uh, a development company. So that that wasn't you know there was nothing really unusual there. So the the PPC part didn't really seem to affect that. Um, I think the way uh, we're, we're, we're PBC, in fact, I would 
say in, in all of our fundraising efforts, very rarely has anyone kind of come back and said, well, I was going to invest, but then I heard about this PBC thing. I looked into it and I was like, no, that, that's a deal breaker. That, that has not really happened. But I think ultimately um, the way that the, the, the PBC, the, the way that we're kind of wielding the PBC is not so much through the Novartis collaboration, because again, that's, that's your more standard smaller company partnering with a larger company, but it's more so with the, the, the business model that we call PearlQuest. So the idea that we're going to be partnering with, with patient foundations um, there, the PBC is obviously not a, 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 a disadvantage. It's a, it's a huge asset uh, for those folks. So depending on who you ask, ultimately, I think you either get a neutral response to PBC or, or a very enthusiastic response. So the Pearl Quests, uh, tell me a little bit about these. When I look at your website, it looks kind of like these are uh, distinct programs mm-hmm. that patient advocacy groups can sort of buy into. Mm-hmm. They're not you know, buying shares in Perlara as a company. But they they do have a stake now in one of these programs. That's right. So the kind of way you can think about it is that um, essentially these patient foundations are kickstarting R&D for their disease. Um, And instead of it being sort of a a donation, the idea would be is that they're actually paying for us to do the R&D. And, and the way we think about it is that it's, it becomes, um, ultimately, we believe, a co-investment opportunity because the inventions and whatever we commercialize that comes out of the discovery research that's funded by the foundation, we want the foundation to have a piece of that upside that's proportional to the amount of funding they put in and proportional to the amount of de-risking they did when no one else was willing to do that, right? For, for these rare diseases, pharma's not going to just unilaterally fund programs that have 50 patients known. Um, and academics, as much as they'd love to do that, there's no one one-stop shop kind of lab uh, that can do what we can do in terms of integrating across models. But not only that, but also lay the groundwork for commercialization. So there really is no competitor in the market that's offering these foundations or, or even individual families an option to do science for their disease. Um, and so that's what the ProQuest is all about. And, and this is where I think your internet savvy kicks in here in a big way because, uh, and, and we've talked about this uh, at various conferences before, I think, uh, you know, back in the day when I was coming up and writing about new, in, in newspapers, right, you know, you'd have these rare diseases and maybe you'd write a story in the newspaper that's not an interactive media form and you get a, a kid with a disease, and, but it wasn't like an easy way mm-hmm. for, you know, somebody in Australia who has that exact same disease to A, hear about, you know, the, the poor kid in Seattle, or much less B, go find a research research team that's working on it. And now, like, you've, you're working in this area, what you call economies of rare, yes. where <laughs> these rare people, <laughs> wherever they are around the world, they can find each other on the web and you can mobilize, you can fan those flames Make those connections. Yeah, it's something that I've kind of come to appreciate over time, and, and, and I've called it economies of rare. And, and you know, everyone knows economies of scale refer to efficiencies unlocked by large numbers. But but what about efficiencies unlocked by really small numbers? And that's essentially what what economies of rare is all about. And so whether it comes to the fact that you know because these communities now can connect through the internet, geographic barriers are, are and the cost of, of scaling those barriers go to zero. Um, because these groups uh, are already sort of figuring out best practices for fundraising, then all of a sudden they can sort of um, you know teach themselves to fish instead of relying on, on being fed by some by, 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 by some source. So I think w- down the line, whether it comes from the, the 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 first community organizing events all the way through to you know putting together a clinical trial protocol, um, I think you're you're seeing here that that patients because of the smallness uh, of their of the community. 
the information just zips across the network so much faster and so much more efficiently. And, and also because so many people are willing to step in and help when they see that this community is so small and neglected. So it, it, it really is an idea that has kind of just, I've seen from the evidence unfold over, over many years now across many families and just seeing these same patterns emerge again and again. You put out a press release, I want to say, not, not too long ago um, about one of your rare disease programs. And and essentially, then it's out there in Google Land, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. people find you, yep. both pa- patients and you know family members or you know advocacy groups who want to fund you. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, it, it's really uh, you know you don't have to scour the world anymore. And I mean, I'm st- I'm sure you still do to some extent, mm-hmm. but um, it makes it a lot easier. Yeah, I mean, it, it's 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 kind of remarkable that you take this approach where. Instead of like setting up a website and saying, I need to recruit patients to my trial. And so I need to somehow figure out how to essentially market this, the, 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 that this trial exists and blah, blah, blah. Now all you need to do is sort of put up a homing beacon. And just as soon as you just like, then it can be the tiny dimmest little light. But because these folks are looking at exactly for that wavelength, um, they can spot it. And then boom, they zero on you. And then they let everybody else know, yep, I found them. And so within, again, it's just, we had it happen just two weeks ago. We put out this press release about GNOA1 alpha, or GNOA1, this latest disease we're working on. And you know, within 48 hours, multiple groups got in touch with us. And I should have predicted that would happen. But again, it's just another example of how economies are rare. All of a sudden, the, the costs that you think might be barriers just melt away um, because of this, this smallness and the agility um, that emerges from it. Now, you've made progress. We've talked about your journey. Uh, you did this partnership with Novartis. But in the last year or so, you, you had to go raise money again. Mm-hmm. And um, I know that that was um, grueling, um, you know, stressful. Uh, you, you, you talked uh, pretty openly about, you know, suffering from some self-doubt, mm-hmm. some imposter syndrome. Um, what, tell us about that experience. Yeah, it was definitely one of the most, uh, it was one of the toughest experiences of my professional life because I think obviously fundraising is hard. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not the first founder to, to complain about that. Um, but I, I think, you know, when, I, when I've when i talked more to scientist founders um, in particular, um, often there's a, 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 we share a particular version of this story. Um, and um, yeah, I, I, think, I think it just often has to do um, with the fact that scientists just tell stories in a different way than, than VCs like to hear them. Um, and that, and that mismatch creates a lot of friction and probably a lot of friction that, that, that doesn't really need to be there and a lot of frustration that doesn't need to be there. Um, but there are, um, just some, some of those differences that, that kind of grate on you as a founder. And, and I, and I just realized that, uh, I could do the default, which is what everyone else does, and keep it to myself. Or I could put it out there the way I put out everything, from science to to everything else. Uh, you know, from our budget to, to um, all, all kinds of other vital stats about the company. And thought, well, this is a vital statistic about the company that that doesn't get talked enough about, which is sort of the CEO, you know, mental well being, emotional well being. And you know, if that's not uh, in in a good place, then how can the company be in a good place? So I just want to create a culture where people feel comfortable to admit the obvious, which is that. Fundraising sucks, and it's hard. Uh, you mean uh, the CEOs aren't always, you know, captains of their own destiny? And <laughs> that's right. That, that sometimes, uh, you yeah. know, in control. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you can still you can still achieve superhuman feats and and, and admit to be exceedingly human <laughs> at your core. So this radical transparency, um, you know, this is not for everyone. In business, business hasn't traditionally operated this way, putting budgets out there, salaries out there, egads. <laughs> um, um, how has this gone 
for you? And, and have you had any, uh, any downsides, any moments where you thought, mm, I, I wish I had been a little more discreet about that? I mean, I think, I think I'm, I'm acting in a very rational way here, right? So if my actions led to, you know, people unfollowing me en masse or led to, you know, people snubbing me at meetings or led to, you know, lots of negative reactions, then I, w- I would have stopped doing that. <laughs> um, and in fact, the reason why I, I do push out the content I do is because, in fact, the opposite happens. You know, get more interest and get more buzz um, when I when I come out and sort of say things that maybe a lot of other people just don't talk about. So yes, I think I've definitely learned over time to censor myself and not to could just be uh, you know a completely uh, flowing flowing it of crazy ideas. But like I think you know. Um, yeah, that, that, that's something that you learn over time as, as being someone on Twitter. <laughs> you just kind of learn how to censor yourself. But again, I would say that, you know, I'm rational. I wouldn't be doing these things if, it, if, it, if there wasn't sort of positive feedback encouraging more. Yeah, but, you know, you, um, you are not afraid to mix it up and be a little pugnacious, especially with that um, insider's club, the VCs the, the you know, maybe call it the good old boy network. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not afraid to call them out on their own BS sometimes. And that's a pretty rare thing. Pe- most people are afraid to do that. I mean, look, if that's how I can use, you know, my white male privilege, then that's easy. That, that's an easy one for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you, you could have been a journalist, Ethan, because that's part of what we do too. <laughs> Um, I, I think uh, I think we're out of time. Thanks very much, Ethan, for joining me on the Long Run Podcast. Luke, it was a pleasure. Th- thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Music comes from D.A. Wallach. Thanks to Presage Biosciences and Harvard Medical School Executive Education for sponsoring. Next on The Long Run, Chip Clark. He's the CEO of Cambridge, Massachusetts-based Genosha Biosciences. This vaccine platform was in big trouble last summer. It got through a phase two trial with its lead therapeutic vaccine for genital herpes. Clark tried to insist the trial was a success and the product had a future. The market disagreed. Cash ran low. Morale ebbed. Something had to be done. How did he and Genosha get out of this tight spot? You don't want to miss that next show. And thanks for listening to The Long Run. Tell your friends about it on your favorite podcast app or on social media. We're just getting started. See you next episode.